Hello and welcome to another episode of We Ain't Got No Podcast, We Ain't Got No History's official podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Funnel, and we are back, ladies and gents. It has been a while since our last episode. We did say we're going to take a little bit of a break, uh, which is ironic seeing that <laughs> this year was one where we did have several of them, but we're up and running again. Football's back to normality on the club level. I'm joined by my fellow and lovely host, Ram. Ram, hope you're well. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, thank you for that very kind introduction. I've been, I've been all right. It's just been a very quick um, month or so since we recorded last, but I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into it again today. So with, uh, without further ado, you can talk about our awesome guest today. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I'm very much, I already wrote to you this morning, I'm really looking forward to this episode because yeah. there's a lot to cover and we have a guest, which is a guest that's already been on our podcast and will be very well known to the We Ain't Got No History community and it's the brilliant Joe Tweedy. Joe, brilliant to have you back. Yeah, hey guys, thank you for, for having me back on and for the uh, incredibly kind and certainly very overblown <laughs> introduction there but uh, no I appreciate it and I'm certainly looking forward to having a uh, chat about the the past couple of months or so in terms of what's been going on um, and obviously as we head into to the new season as well so yeah no looking forward to, to having a chat today. Absolutely and before we get into that and the obvious points as a Chelsea fan um, there has been a some slight developments since the last time we had a chat, and that was on your personal project. I mean, obviously, you have also uh, became a recurring or more um, more frequent guest on the London is Blue podcast, which is obviously also not unknown to the blog. Uh, tell us a bit about your project, Joe, if the community hasn't already heard, which I guess a lot of them have, but it's been quite quite a ride for you already and it's getting started now isn't it yeah the uh the king's road project i think we, we even spoke about it sort of a year ago it's it's been an awful long time in terms of planning and an execution uh i kind of thought if i wanted to do something a little bit more by myself and driven by my kind of desire to do more sort of long form and storytelling kind of podcasts that you know if i wanted to do that i would try to do it to the best of my abilities and yeah, the the sort of the the brainchild of that has been this King's Road podcast series that I've been sort of uh, directing, producing, and and I don't use the term starring in, but certainly speaking on um, when it comes to sort of the the podcast feed from the London is Blue guys. Uh, yeah, they were sort of gracious enough to give me a, a platform to tell some of the stories or look into some of the the things that I I kind of find interesting about the club, and I think certainly with the the idea being that every sort of four to six weeks we have this. Um, probably an hour, maybe it's uh, two hours in terms of splitting up uh, conversations, but interesting conversations with um, people around the club, people connected to the club, um, but try not to focus so much on the, on the playing side of things or the, the actual day-to-day -day stuff. So, you know, I've, I've had a, an in-depth discussion about sort of Chelsea's philosophy as a club, and that was sort of a solo effort. I've interviewed Ruben Samut, um, which was really fascinating to hear from somebody that's come through the academy and um, taking sort of the, the listener on the journey from being scouted as a essentially a toddler um, all the way through to, you know, winning um, FA Youth Cups and UEFA Youth Leagues and, and that whole journey and, and how that works. Um, recently as well, been been very, very fortunate to speak to um, two people from Chelsea, Rolo and uh, Simon, 
who um, sort of independently work um, for, for the club. One, one of them, Simon, heads up the Chelsea Foundation. Rola looks after the special projects and actually manages a lot of the owners' um, charitable interests across the globe. And that conversation for me was probably the most humbling because you think you know about Chelsea as a fan and then you realise that you you know maybe 5% of what these people are talking about when it comes to sort of Chelsea's off-field initiatives and hearing that they, they at least in the foundation, they manage around 500 projects a week um, kind of puts my project management skills to shame a little bit in terms of what it is that they're doing. But that, that for me was certainly a, an episode that I was very proud of to have them both come on um, and outline really the, the I suppose that the things around the club outside of the, the footballing side of, uh, you know, the, the, the way that we all support the club. And I think that kind of gave me a more of a, a unique attachment to, to Chelsea to see that these uh, initiatives and programmes and things that we've been running have been so successful and had such a huge impact uh, in the community and then just rounding that out to see that Chelsea in terms of their spending on charitable initiatives you know we're spending double the nearest club in the Premier League in terms of what it is that we spend each year so it's clearly sort of part of the the club's DNA and fabric now so yeah these sort of conversations you know to different topics around the club um, talking about the club's history the present the future the charitable side of it it's uh yeah it's so, so certainly something that I think is is in, of interesting uh, of interest to me the feedback so far has been really positive so if you haven't checked any of those episodes out they're not time sensitive so you can kind of listen to them at any point which was also one of the the things that i was i was keen to do so yeah i mean there's certainly something that i would hope that people can check out and hopefully get some enjoyment and some some information from as well absolutely i, I can only highly recommend to do that we will also be providing the link in the description so go and check that out chelsea fans and yes uh well without further ado uh on that note of Chelsea doing what it what they do, um, and it has to be said, during the pandemic, we have been fabulous for all the pro NHS workers, for all the um, all the work that we have done during the pandemic. In without, I think it's a Millennium Hotel, which we have uh, been able to. Uh, I'm only thinking German here, gents. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it happens to me sometimes after a long day of work because that has changed since the last time we, we spoke. Um, I, I could speak in German now. No, but we, we have to Verfügung stellen. Well, we have uh, made it available to NHS workers to come to the Milan Hotel, for example, we have made several other projects, and I think that is also included in the in the episode, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, so yeah, go check that out. Okay, Euros 220. Um, we haven't had an episode since the Euro started. This is our first one after it's already ended. Uh, it was quite the roller coaster ride for us as England fans as English, the good, the bad, and the ugly, one could say. On the pitch, great. Off the pitch, not so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, but as the season has been progressing to come back to the Chelsea, I think it's the most important thing to talk about. How did the Chelsea players fare at Euros? What our ta our takeaways Thankfully, there weren't really injuries, uh, not real ones that we need to talk about. But, Joe, from a Chelsea perspective, 
would you say that this tournament was success for for us as a club for our players yeah trying to to separate myself from my uh, englishness here in terms of the <laughs> the players um i probably think in terms of the tournament both andreas christensen i think Jorginho were were probably the standouts in terms of the sort of consistent performance through the tournament um I was, I think, slightly disappointed that the, certainly when it came to Reese James and Ben Chill, that they weren't as um, prominent or they didn't feature, in, in, in my opinion, nearly as much as they as they could have. Yeah. Um, so that probably is, is a disappointing standpoint. But um, from, yeah, from from Christensen and from from Jorginho's standpoints, I think they both had had very solid tournaments. And then you, you kind of had sort of a mixed bag amongst the rest. Um, felt that the, the French squad were just sort of on the precipice of imploding um, and, and there's not really much can take a deal, though I think he showed a, an obvious chemistry with Paul Popper at times. I think that they look very good as a sort of a, a midfield pairing um, in sort of a, amongst the, the the sort of the craziness that was sort of the, the French camp. Um, surprised that they didn't go further. But then when you sort of read some of the athletic pieces and some of the, the takeaways that were being made about the squad of the composition and how things were fought, you know, kind of falling out sort of every other minute, it felt like that was probably a lot more explainable. Um, and then kind of, the, you know, you had a, a few players here and there. I think, you know, Kovacic was was fairly underwhelming for, for Croatia. Um, Batshuayi, I'm still surprised it's still a Chelsea player whenever I see his name at the club. <laughs> so again, but obviously not not somebody who necessarily... Uh, did too much. Aspi, I think, was nice to see him score that that goal for Spain and, yeah. and actually play a play a role for the for, for the Spaniards through the tournament. But I think really it kind of starts and ends with the probably the the sort of the success that obviously Jorginho and Emerson had for for Italy. I think obviously Andreas Christensen also cemented his reputation and probably showed some of his versatility as well with that stepping into midfield. And then you know it is something that sort of pains me to to say in terms of maybe Mason and his performances not necessarily being utilised in a, in a system that makes the best of his qualities, um, becoming some, somewhat of a scapegoat from, uh, from England fans was quite quite difficult to, to read and process, but I tried to ignore a lot of that noise uh, in general. I think England fans would, would probably have gladly have played like 11 attackers, um, you know, to sort of get the, uh, the, the, all of the sort of the favoured players on the pitch at the same time. But, you know, I think it will come back to the, the same thing that's happened time and time again in Mason Mount's career where, Every single manager that's that's had an opportunity to coach him and get to know him, he's sort of a, a sort of de facto starter, and I, I don't think that will change with with Tuchel and possibly uh, England going forward. But in the system England were playing, although it was very, uh, at least in terms of the numerical distribution of players, very similar to what Chelsea play, the the lack of I think incisive passing or the lack of ability to really play that early ball into those number tens was was very uh, disappointing and the the tempo and pace of play from England probably wasn't really conducive to Mason having the best tournament and as I said recent and Ben not playing was was disappointing but ultimately you, you reach a final you know you lose in the manner that you did um have to be sort of I suppose relatively happy that, that you've made the final but I, I still think that there were some decisions along the way that that uh, didn't necessarily benefit the the Chelsea boys fat bench you know didn't even I don't think he even kicked a ball at the tournament um you know, in, in in anger at least, or certainly in a, a meaningful game, um, was was baffling considering that he probably was one of the stronger finishers to the Chelsea squad in this in the, in the season, um, and yeah, you know, sort of building the, the England team around Mason, uh, sorry, around Harry Kane. Um, I'm not still not entirely sold on that as a, as an idea at, at um, international level, but yeah, um, you know, standouts Jorginho and Christensen. I think Emerson did well in the final, um, but uh, you know, on a slightly more 
I suppose, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit more of a cheeky note. The fact that the England boys didn't necessarily play so much might be a blessing in disguise for us as we enter the new season. Apart from Mason Mount, who appears to have played seven billion games of football in the past two years. So <laughs> apart from him, the the others not playing so much is probably a blessing. And I'm looking at Kante probably as well there. So, you know, have to take the, the good with the bad. And, and, and maybe that's not the, the worst thing for us going forward. Yeah. <laughs> seven billion is about accurate. It feels like it's, it's accurate. Give, give or take a bit. I, I know I know Ram is the, the numbers guy here, but, you know, just, just putting it out there, it's give or take seven billion. It feels like that at least. Absolutely. I mean, Ram. <laughs> <laughs> Expected Mason Mount minutes, seven billion, <laughs> plus or minus. Yeah, yeah, probably not far off the mark. <laughs> yeah, it was just, you You rightfully called it noise. I think it's just um, a combination of him just playing all the time. And at some point or the other, it's bound to catch up. And obviously the shape doesn't help. He's uh, playing in a role where it doesn't always um, get consistently shown in the best of lights, is how I'll put it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much to worry about Mason Mount. I just hope he um, rests up adequately before the new season because um, he's definitely going to be playing a lot for Chelsea. Nothing's changed there. Um, it was, uh, I will say it was amusing to see Emerson start the final because <laughs> it almost felt like, it felt a bit like foreshadowing throughout the season of ours where he just kept on coming on as an attacker and getting included in uh, match day squads instead of Tammy Abraham and everything. It's just, you're thinking, how is he here? <laughs> Does he really need to be here? And then he uh, not only ends up in the national team for Italy, but also starts the final, which is uh, very, very cool for him. But yeah, it's just one of those slightly funny things. Made me chuckle, but he did play well, to be fair. So full uh, full respect to him and Jorginho for winning it. But yeah, I must say, I really, I really loved... Um, how, how much Christensen stepped up in this tournament. I think, Jimmy, it's something that we discussed a lot um, the day after the Champions League final as well, as yeah. to how he just um, slotted, in on, slotted in on that day and uh, played the part that he needed to and was just impeccable in doing so. And he did pretty much the same thing here, did whatever was asked of him um, to the best of his capacity. And I just think it's, um, it's a very pleasantly surprising thing for Christensen to be on this redemption arc now so yeah I'm, I'm all for it you know our centre-back situation is um, a bit tenuous at the moment anyway with the contract situations and no one really going past um, 2022 except I think Zuma um, so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm all for the centre-back battle royal happening at Chelsea and hopefully Christensen comes out as um, one of them with the ex- with the extensions I mean, we, we'd be crazy not to give him an extension. I can't. I mean, even, even players that we sell, we give them extensions. So I, I do believe that um, we will be giving him a nice uh, contract extension, which will give him a bump up in regard to his earnings. Uh, you know, he's, I think he's not that high up on the salary uh, list. So he, he deserves it. He fully deserves it. Everyone, uh, well... Pretty much has already, you know, thought he's he's he'll be off this summer. We we don't need him, you know. Under Lampard, he was barely playing, and same as Rudiger. To be fair, he's you know risen from the dead, and now you think it's unthinkable that he'd he'd not be playing at Chelsea. And I mean, obviously, we have uh, people like on Talksport, uh, <laughs> uh, Danny Mills saying, well. 
Ben White's better than Grandis Christensen, uh, <laughs> but you know there are a lot of clueless people. I mean, Andreas Christensen, even rival fans, you could see the comments. Uh, they were saying Andreas Christensen levels above. He, he he's just that good at the moment. And you know, for people with a short memory, it's not surprising. Think about up until that one Barcelona game in Conte's second season, he was the one of the, if not the first name on the team sheet. He was that good, and he's showing that again. It's great to see. And, uh, you know, kudos to him. Did well with Bil- uh, Belgium, sorry, with Denmark. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think he's definitely next to Jorginho, uh, the winner of the tournament. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always so, it's so weird when one talks about Jorginho because there are, is still this, this, this division among the fan base, even now, where you th- see people disrespecting him. But no one can argue that he wasn't fantastic for it. He made that team tick, among others, obviously. But, wow. You know, it, it, was, it was painful as an England fan. I'm sure Joe will echo that sentiment uh, to see us lose to Italy. But it's great for him. And we will be uh, briefly talking about him in the Ballon d'Or discussion in a bit. Um, yeah, I think what one can take away is that every player when thought, okay, they were actually uh, really good at the tail end of the season. They also played well in the tournament. I mean, who was given, uh, th- those who were given the opportunity because one name that seems to be forgotten already <laughs> because they did uh, get knocked out by England quite early on in the tournament uh, was Germany. And they were, may I say, carried by Kai Havertz. Kai Havertz was their best player for me. And I think seeing that he scored also quite a few goals for them, I think it was three, correct me if I'm wrong. Um that is also something that we should keep in mind because that is promising. You know, Christensen playing well for them. Uh, Havertz playing well for them. Christensen playing well for Denmark. I thought Mason Mount wasn't bad. I thought he was good, actually, apart from the final where he really wasn't, to be fair. Um, and Jorginho, you know, if they can take that confidence back in to the new season, then, yeah, definitely Euro 2020 was a full success for Chelsea. Moving on, uh, yeah, as already said briefly, Ballon d'Or, Jorginho, guys, what do you think? <laughs> Joe, is it, 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 would he deserve this? The, uh, the expert. Um, to, to be honest, I, I'm going. I'm going to be quite kind to Jorginho. So, for those of you who may be unused to this, you know, make sure you're sitting down and all those sorts of caveats. Um, I, I think this season. Well, I know it's sort of on the calendar year, but this this year. I don't think beyond, okay, so beyond like Messi and Lewandowski, um, there's not for me like an outstanding, outstanding person. You can make the case that sort of Neymar's had some brilliant moments, et cetera. But, you know, when it comes to this, this season and the camp, you know, the campaign that we've seen, um, you know, maybe it's a question of, of somebody who's, you know, been, been consistent in, in certainly when it comes to Champions League and, and for Italy, um, few, few domestic wobbles aside from Jorginho. Um, so I think from the sort of trophy standpoint, you know, he's been a, a you know, a, a big player in a team that's won the Champions League. He's likewise, he's been the 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 same sort of level of or profile of player for, for Italy. Um, 
And I think, you know, you can make sort of an argument for medals that that kind of works in his favour. Um, I don't think he's, for me, he's a super serious candidate. And, and the reason that I say that is that, for example, um, you know, in, in Chelsea's Champions League campaign, I do think that Jorginho was a very uh, solid and, and decent player for Chelsea in Europe. But, you know, w- without trying to rewrite history, N'Golo Kante was the absolute uh, catalyst for Chelsea winning the, the Champions League. I've not seen a a string of performances at the level that he put in where he sort of continuously seemed to win the man of the match in every game. I've not seen a player string together those sort of performances against the calibre of opposition that we were playing, um, you know, week after week after week. And in that Champions League campaign, again, this isn't dismissing uh, any other Chelsea player, including Jorginho here, but I just felt that Kante was um, kind of above and beyond in terms of the the real star player there. And again, sort of looking at, uh, you know, Italy, I didn't see all of their games. I watched them in the semi-final um, where I felt Jorginho probably was, was at fault for the goal and in the final as well, where he played well. But it was only really where Marco Verratti kind of dropped a bit uh, deeper and started to really pull the strings that Italy kind of controlled that game. So when I'm, I think of Ballon d'Or, when I think of the calibre of performances that, that is needed to to win that, I think Yash Jorginho has been very, very consistent in, in 2021 and you can't deny him that. But, you know, if you were to rattle off, um, you know, give me four or five, you know, absolute world-class games where he was the determining factor, which for me, the, you know, the Ballon d'Or represents that sort of level of impact. You know, I'm looking at Kante in the Champions League. Uh, Messi, obviously, finally uh, delivering the, the Copa America, finally winning that international trophy for Argentina, albeit not necessarily playing the, the best game of his life in the final. And probably just Lewandowski's sort of, you know, year as well in just terms of how well he's played. I think that you you can make the argument from consistency. I think you can make the argument from trophies for Jorginho. Um, you can also argue, as I said, I think that there's there's not really been standout uh uh, play from lots of players this season so maybe that consistency pushes him up into uh you know top 10 conversation top five conversation potentially but I, when I, I think of those moments and those real high quality individual performances games that you will recall you know three four five years later you'll remember the the run of games that Kante had for Chelsea in the Champions League you'll remember you know Messi's sort of uh you know kind of performances and Lewandowski etc um, and that's probably where, for me, the, the argument does fall fall down. It's not saying that he's been bad or that he's performed poorly. You know, that it's, just because I'm suggesting one thing doesn't mean that the the complete polar opposite of that is true. Just that I think more of a sort of steadying influence in those teams, um, being that sort of metronomic presence, being that sort of seven, eight out of ten performer um, when it's been required. I've not seen sort of the highest. I think Kante's had some nines and tens in the Champions League run. I think he's been absolutely exceptional, for example. Uh, and it's it's very difficult to to look at what Messi has produced and and consider there to be sort of a, a proper alternative. So I think yeah, I mean I'd I'd like to see him in the conversation. As I said, you know this is a guy that I still think domestically is is, is not necessarily the caliber or, or the profile of player that Chelsea need to really close that gap on Manchester City. But certainly Oof. happy to it. Yeah, you know certainly Oof. happy to it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That, that that's going to cause some controversy. controversy. Yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just just what I've seen. As I said, over the past couple of years with him and, and Kovacic in, in particular being very prominent, you know, the, the points, the, the delta between Chelsea and the champions kind of speaks for itself. So, um, you know, domestically, as I said, I think that, there's, that that for me is where the dichotomy is. Domestically, I don't particularly rate him, but I think you can see in this particular system in the Champions League, particularly when partnered with Kante, uh, when surrounded by by Barella and and by Verratti, for example, the qualities that he has are are kind of um, sort of drawn out and actually made more apparent. So mm. certainly feel that he's more of a European um, caliber 
player, and I think that was kind of seen in the Champions League in particular, for Chelsea at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to change my opinion that domestically he's now some sort of superstar holding player because it just doesn't bear out to what I've seen over the past couple of seasons. But um, yeah, I do I do think he should be in the conversation. I'm quite happy for him to be in the conversation. Um, but I just I just can't see him beating out some some more high-profile candidates. And I would also say that I do think in terms of um, the quality of, of performances this you know this year that can say for me probably does does edge him out in terms of Chelsea's uh, nomination as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I mean, any Chelsea, whether it's Jorginho or Kante or whoever, um, if it's a Chelsea player that win, would win the Ballon d'Or, that would be a, a huge achievement in itself. So, you know, where, whoever would win it, that'd be great. Um, though, uh Sadly, I think the talk of N'Golo Kante as Ballon d'Or winner uh, sadly went out of the window once France got that humiliating uh, or had that humiliating defeat at the hands of Switzerland in the uh, round of 16 during the Euros. And don't get me wrong, I, I feel that would be unfair to judge him only because they got knocked out as a team. But, you know... It's a very fickle thing, this Ballon d'Or, and it seems like nailed on Messi will win it again just because he's Messi. If you ask me, I feel someone else would deserve it this year more than Messi, but okay, you know, I agree with you. Kante will be a brilliant shout, but we'll have to wait and see. Ram, your thoughts. Would you agree with Joe? Uh, Or would you say, yeah, come on, Jorginho, Team Jorginho, come on. (laughs) <laughs> you think I'd say that? Um, nah. Uh, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't want to really take sides between Conde or Jorginho. That's <laughs> uh, what the people want. They want civil war. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just, think, I just think Joe's um, points were, um, yeah, kind of hit the nail on the head. You needed a lot of those 9 out of 10 performances for a player to actually be considered to actually win the Ballon d'Or. So, I mean, I, I would just see Conte as being a far more um, feasible option for them to award the Ballon d'Or rather than Jorginho. Um, again, I'm not I'm not taking sides, but I just uh, I just think Messi will win it anyway. But it, it would have been nice for a Chelsea player to win it, but I just don't think Jorginho has had the same kind of impact as Conte, especially at a club level, which also matters a lot, given it's basically um, 80% of the year. <laughs> and then there's the international tournament. Um, so on that basis, yeah, I, I feel like if France had done a little better in the tournament, maybe maybe Conte would still be in the mix. But now I think, yeah, Messi winning the Copa America has pretty much blown everyone else out of the water. So um, that there's that. But I am um, just for... Completely non-Jorginho-related reasons. Um, if he weren't awarded the Ballon d'Or, you'd probably... I mean, if he were awarded it, you'd never hear the end of it from um, certain sections of um, users online. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of happy that won't happen. So, but that's all. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, it, it will be. I, I said, I don't feel like Messi should be winning it just because he finally won the... A trophy because the same could be said for Jorginho. You know, I, I'm aware that Messi got the goals and assists in 
in the final. But then again, people were slating Jorginho. Well, he didn't play well in the final. Well, Messi didn't either. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm sure there's bias here because I've never been a big fan of Messi. Obviously, objectively speaking, he is arguably the greatest of all time but you know it's, it's, I'm, too, I'm too much Chelsea to 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 acknowledge I love how you've dismissed that. him that's so funny he's arguably <laughs> the best of all time but who really cares because you know Andreas Christensen should have won it absolutely yeah. for, just for that goal in itself I, and I hope he scores one for Chelsea Andreas please <laughs> you know, be, be the while namely never so that would be pretty good but yeah we'll have to wait and see um we will be right back. We'll just go into the break and then after the woods, we'll be talking about the fixture list. And we are back. Uh, dear community, since the last time we recorded, we have had the fixture list be uh, well, published by the Premier League. It's a bit of a mixed bag, I'd say. Um, guys, I'm not sure about that start. I mean, Apart from the first game of the season against Palace, which will be spicy against Mark Gay. Um, but otherwise, after that, wow. <laughs> that will be quite the run of games for the first, well, month of the season. Arsenal, Liverpool, both away. Aston Villa at home. Tottenham away. And then Man City at home. Oof. I mean, Joe... If we get through that with, you know, a decent amount of points in the bag, I think this could be a pretty good season. But what a start. It's uh, it, it's strange to sort of suggest that the <laughs> the entire season could, uh, could you know, be massively affected by the first sort of four to six weeks that we're playing. But, yeah, I mean, looking at uh, those fixtures, as you were saying, in particular, like those four... Um, sort of spicier games. I mean, it's it's crazy that you know, depending on how we do there, then and where we're sort of positioned in the league, you're either sort of playing massive catch up, or you could have a pretty significant sort of lead on others. I think the one thing of interest for me, certainly before the Palace game, is that we obviously have the the Super Cup three days before that, and you know that I think that is a trophy that I think people will want the club to take seriously in terms of the the sort of deployment of players. So you're looking at quite a short turnaround from. Um, the the Super Cup versus and and then obviously trying to balance your your team selection in that game versus the the first game against Crystal Palace. So while yeah, I mean obviously you want to go and and beat Palace and the Mark Gurhi derby or whatever it's going to be called going forward, but um, you know you've got these this enormous amount of fixtures that are going to be um, requiring us to be quite smart with how we're using the the squad. Certainly when it comes to sort of rotating and and ensuring that we have the right sort of profile of player playing against the right profile of opposition. But when you sort of factor in the Super Cup as well, that's a, a very kind of interesting way, let's say, to to sort of start the season for us. And I, I don't know how predictive it will be in terms of where Chelsea eventually end up. I mean, the only the only real sort of silver lining that I've seen so far is that for, I think from March onwards, we I think we play Manchester United, so one potential rival for the Premier League. And then the rest of the fixtures tend to be teams that are sort of bottom half of the Premier League. So, I think where maybe probably historically we've seen Chelsea have some quite um, tough um, end of season runs recently. It feels it feels like we've played some some pretty significant matches towards the end of the season. You know, if we are pushing for a title or we're pushing for a, a decent position uh, within the top four, having that I, I don't want to call it easy, but sort of re- by by you know sort of relativity, sort of having it relatively easier than than runnings we've seen previously. 
that could hopefully be something that works in our favour, particularly if we are in the the latter stages of, of the Champions League or latter stages of cup competitions. The fact that we're not we're not playing sort of City and Liverpool and and Arsenal and Tottenham and whoever else it might be, Leicester, for example, in that sort of March onwards period, I think that hopefully can can uh, yeah hopefully can 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 help us there. So it feels like it's very top heavy to start with, but hopefully that is then balanced out by this this end of the season, which by by comparison appears to be or at least feels to be slightly easier in terms of in terms of fixtures. So may, maybe it balances itself out, but you obviously you don't want to be too far away from the the sort of leading pack by the the conclusion of those sort of first six seven games. So we need to be kind of in touch, and then hopefully the rest of the season gives us that ability to. Um, you know, from March onwards to maybe sort of push or, or, or close the gap on who may be above us at that point in time. Yeah, no, t- to be fair, uh, one has to say that no team in the Premier League is an easy one anymore. That that has become painfully apparent in recent times. Obviously, there have been the three clubs that have uh, <laughs> been promoted to the Premier League for the and a gajillionth time in Norwich and and Watford, but um, yeah, <laughs> I I have to say that end uh, that end run with West Ham United, Everton, Wolverhampton, and the which uh, the game that which you mentioned in Manchester United, Joe, <sighs> also not easy. You know, it's, it's, you never know. West Ham's been uh, the surprise of the season. Uh, Everton, maybe they will get the the head's right under Rafa Benitez. You never know. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It seems like the, the only easy periods on paper, which we have, does come after those initial few games where we play against Southampton, Brentford. Uh, I'm sure you'll look forward to that, Ram. Uh, Norwich, <laughs> Newcastle, Burnley. And then, you know, it starts again. Leicester, Manchester United, well, Watford, then West Ham, Leeds, Everton, Wolverhampton. It's, 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 it's just really, really... Uh, patchy uh, in regard to easier and then more difficult periods. But then again, uh, you know, probably can't have it any other way anyway. So, yeah, it's, it, we, we mastered the end of the season where everyone was thinking, well, actually, we have the most difficult run-in compared to, for example, Arsenal, which had easily the uh, the easiest one on paper, they botched it. Good for us. But, you know, nothing's ever uh, certain anyway in the Premier League. That's what makes it so exciting. So, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. But, ooh, spicy, spicy start. And that also brings us then to the later point where we have to say, you know, we haven't got any signings yet. If we do get them in, will they be able to settle in at all when we take an Arsenal, Liverpool uh, and the and the sort Probably not. So we'll have to make do with our, our squad that we currently have. And one has to take into consideration it will be another few weeks, maybe two weeks or so, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that Mason Mount and Jorginho and the likes who played in the semi-finals and finals are back at Cobham. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. But, Joe, Absolutely on point. I really want to win that that Super Cup. I'm still oh, yeah. scarred for life from that Falcao hat trick. Um, that that I think that was after we won the Champions League. Was yeah, it, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. And then there was the um, there was the ta- no, sorry, there was a Romero penalty miss. 
Yeah. And then there was the Tammy Abraham miss as well. If I'm not wrong. Yeah. 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 True. True. It's, it's, yeah. You see, you see, that's, those are the kind of things that I try to blend out. I've completely forgotten about that, that Tammy Abraham miss. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we sh- really should be winning. It's the same as with the FIFA World Cup because, um, or Club World Cup, sorry, that would really add to our trophy tally so yeah. that we could somehow overtake Liverpool, which have eight, if I'm not mistaken. So we need like three or, or, or more. I think we need actually a few more than that uh, to overtake them. But that would go a long way towards actually overtaking Liverpool in that department. So, yeah, um, just those were just our thoughts on the Chelsea fixture list. Uh, good things, though, bad things. Leave a comment in the comment section below where you will tell us what you think of the fixture list. But now we will continue with a very, very important point, which has been in the news over the past few days. That, I would say, is also a bit of a mixed bag. Chelsea's Academy Exodus. We have had already two Academy products leave the club this season in Mark Goy and T- uh, Fikal Tomori. Lewis Bate will probably, I mean, it's almost certain now that he'll be leaving for Leeds. Tino Angentino, not Tino Angentino, Liveramento will also most probably be leaving the club. <sighs> I mean, I've got two very stern advocates of youth at the club sitting here beside me, well, virtually. Um, guys, should we be worried? I mean, it's not necessarily the summer that we were <laughs> anticipating after a Champions League win where we're actually worried because loads of academy youngsters and promising ones like that are leaving the club. Is it understandable? Could we have done anything to maybe, well, change their minds? Joe, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this has been a trend for a couple of years now. I mean, the guys you mentioned as well, you've got obviously Tarek Lanty left, didn't see a pathway. Uh, Pierre Equa went to West Ham, Messiara and Ari and B gone to Bayern. Obviously, Samuel Ealing has gone to Juventus. You know, uh, I think Nathan Young-Coombs is at Brentford now. We've got a guy, a goalkeeper, Kelechi Chibuze um, at Leicester. Obviously, Lewis is going to Leeds. Miles Harris is being linked to Brentford. Tino yeah. is being linked to Brighton. I mean, you go through the names here. So, it, 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 I think it interests me because the calibre of teams that people are going to, they're either sort of Premier League teams or, you know, teams who are very well known on the continent. So, mm. this sort of notion that these players... Um, not sort of at Chelsea standard or, you know, need to go on 400 loans, et cetera, to, to come back and prove themselves. I think that certainly on, on the European stage and the European scouts that I speak to, and, and I'm not sure if, if Ram would be at liberty to say, but, you know, at Chelsea under 23 games or 18 games, whatever it's going to be, Chelsea have uh, historically had the highest sort of percentage of European scouts kind of attend those games when you could attend games in person, especially when we're in FA Youth Cup finals. So, you know, the calibre of, of player that we're producing is is high. And I think the fact that we've got such a sort of talented group of players around similar ages leaving doesn't really, I think, inspire me in terms of the, the future of, of trying to get this sort of production line back on track. Um, 
this I think this kind of Jaden Sancho effect I think this is something that is is very much real now that young players realize that you know maybe going out on three separate loans to three different clubs three different environments etc maybe that isn't the the best way for them to to develop as footballers it's about getting exposure to to playing first team football having the opportunity to play first team football as soon as possible and many of these guys will do that within the next year 18 months for example i, I fully expect certainly people like uh, tino livramento to, to to become players who are capable of playing in the premier league over the course of this season and you know i think chelsea youth made a, a really good point recently on a on a london is blue podcast when that you know these these youngsters they all talk to each other in the england setup you know they're all talking to each other they're all yeah. you know kind of chatting about what they're going to be doing um, and you don't want to be the guy who signs a five-year deal at Chelsea knowing that you're going to be playing 23s football for another two years or the club is going to sort of send you on some massive uh, loan circle. You know, I think it's important to remember that a few seasons ago, Neil Bath made the comments that he thinks Chelsea um, youngsters need at least 150 appearances before they're considered ready for, for Chelsea's first team. So you're looking at around the age of 22 here. Football is changing. Football is far more dynamic than that now. And you're seeing a lot more uh, teenagers, sort of the, the upper echelon of teens, making um, a name for themselves in European football, making a name for themselves in the Premier League. I don't always have to go on this um, odyssey to, to kind of prove their credentials to the club. They'd much rather back their own talents and realise that, you know, by by the time they're 24, 25, if things have gone the way that they, they've wanted in terms of the deal they've made, um, you know, they will be linked to a Manchester City, a Liverpool, whoever it's going to be. You know, you just look at Jadon Sancho going to Dortmund and now possibly coming back to Manchester United. You know, that sort of move for players who are leaving these top academies is going to think be more and more, um, not, not just lucrative to them as, as people in terms of a financial sense, but from a career development standpoint as well. So, you know, you're, you're trading the, the, the possibility of stability uh, or I should say, sorry, instability with Chelsea's kind of loan policy to, to loan players out. Obviously, we have new loan rules coming in as well. So those opportunities will be, be fewer and far uh, you know, in between when it comes to selecting the right players and the right loans. Um, and I just think it, it's, a, it's a continuation of this theme of young players taking control of their careers, realising that, you know, the, the, the prestige and maybe the, the gravitas of playing for a Chelsea is not the same as actually going out and playing week in, week out for a for a Premier League team or, or a team in, in, in Scotland or, or abroad, for example. So I, I think we, it, it should be worrying for the club that, you know, after this first contract, um, the options, I think, to younger players now are, are going to increase drastically. Um, certainly when it comes to, I think, lower lower end Premier League teams, being able to poach some of this top talent, give them a more guaranteed pathway into playing for the first team, first few minutes, whatever you want to you want to say. So I think from Chelsea's perspective, you know, you've you've been able to lock down an Armando uh, you know, Brogier in terms of that contract. Um, but the amount of talent that they're actually letting slip over the these these past sort of two, three seasons is actually quite significant. And when you look at somebody um, like Musiala, for example, who's gone on to become a German international literally by virtue of leaving Chelsea, as much as that probably is going to be the extreme end of the, you know, sort of the the fairy tale that you can tell people his friends are still at the club. He will still talk to them. He will still give them information. Um, and then that in turn will, will possibly give the, the the players the confidence to to step away from Chelsea and, and look for a different situation for themselves. So, um, you know, and I think that the last thing probably for handing over to, to Ram here, um, you know, Chelsea's business model is predicated on being able to sell players for significant you know, amounts of money. When you factor in that we have sold Fikayo Tomori and, and Mark Gurhi, 
for less than what Ben White is being quoted for uh, <laughs> to Arsenal. You know, that is that should be a little bit of a red, you know, a kind of a, a red flag to, to people at Chelsea. Yes, you know, Ben White has Premier League experience and completely appreciate all of that sort of, uh, you know, information that people will say, but he was still being quoted that sort of amount of money to to teams coming out of the championship. You know, he was still very much a, you know, I was seeing figures for like 35, 40, 45 million pounds for him as a player. Um, and yet Mark Gerhe, who probably was among the best centre-backs in the championship, goes for 18 million Yes, we, we all know that sort of Tomori at 25 million is a steal. But if you're not getting the right amounts of money for these players, you know, are you going to have to sell 15 academy products to generate you know, enough money to go and buy a, a first-team striker, for example? So I don't think we're necessarily getting the financial side of the deal that we would want to. The, the bait fee, even for a guy who's not kicked the ball in the first team, seems to me quite low in terms of his, his upside and his potential. I imagine it'll be very similar for, for Tino Livramento, um, and, and probably for, for someone like Miles Park Harris as well, like a, a couple of million pounds is the best we're going to get. You know, is that really, you know, that sort of incremental approach to adding to the transfer kitty doesn't really seem to be getting you closer to bidding 150 million pounds for Erling Haaland. It's sort of like a you know, Chinese water torture tactic where it's just dripping on your forehead and then eventually you're, you're going to get there in four years or something <laughs> like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, just, just sort, of, sort of finishing up here. I think it's, you know, these players realise that they're not treated equally at Chelsea. Um, you know, anecdotally, I know the way that, that Tino Andrian was, was sort of handled, um, you know, turn, turning down loan opportunities or the club turned down loan opportunities for him and also for Billy Gilmore. Um, and as much as, you know, the, the pressure for Tuchel to deliver instantly and what we achieved that season, all of that is absolutely perfectly fine. Winning a Champions League is, is incredible. Nobody's going to sort of make um, or, or poke fingers at that. But when somebody like Tino Andrin is just literally training and twiddling his thumbs in the 23s and not doing something, and so is Billy Gilmore, um, that doesn't always, I think, send the best message to to young players um, that this is going to be a, um, a sort of managerial structure or, or, or the, the pressure put on the manager is going to allow him to develop a, a player um, over the course of the next couple of seasons. You, know, you get linked to uh, Hakimi and there are really tangible links there. You know, if I'm Tino Liramento, this guy's a couple of years older than me. You know, he's uh, he's an international. He's this superstar wingback again. I, I would be having doubts about about uh, my long-term future at the club as well. So I just feel that this this um, kind of the, the, the pathway that maybe was there under Lampard momentarily um, has has seemingly kind of been shut shut uh, quite firmly tight in terms of uh, you know the ability to get players through. Yes, we've got lots of players from the academy in the first team squad, but when you've got the talent that we've had coming through and the, the players that are coming through as well, you know, the fact that we have four or five, six players in the first team shouldn't stop others being given the same opportunity because, you know, other teams don't have as many academy players as us or whatever the, the argument's been made. So all in all, I think it's it's good. It's good on the youngsters for taking their career in their own hands. I think Chelsea, may, maybe these players don't go on to become absolute superstars, um, but if they do go on to become good, good Premier League players, players that could have been useful at Chelsea, the fact that we've got so little for them, um, I think probably will will be felt a little bit down the line. But I think at the moment we're looking very short term when it comes to score composition and maybe that long term feeling of developing and, and trying to progress some players into the into the academy. Uh, sorry, from the academy into the first team has kind of gone to the wayside a bit for the time being. But, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be something that I think not only Chelsea experience going forward, but other clubs as well. Um, and then, I mean, we haven't even touched on the Brexit regulations and how that's going to impact things as well. But all in yeah. all, 
yeah, it's a, it's a very, very tricky situation for the club to be in because, you know, how, how can you convince these these kids to stick around and possibly become a Tomori that you can sell for 25 million if that's the goal, you know, rather than, you know, 18 million for Gerhi or one point, whatever it is for, for Lewis Bate. If that's your business model, you've got to give them an incentive or an opportunity to, to play for the first team because otherwise these kids may not even make their first professional contract, which would be uh, a sort of financial disaster for the club. Hmm. <sighs> but, I mean, sorry to be depressing. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is, it is, but it's a realistic, it's a realistic view of it. I mean, they can't all make it, you know. As exactly, yeah. Every, 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 everyone will say that. I mean, Ram, I'm sure, because uh, I'm looking forward to what you have to say on these recent developments. Uh, but, you know, not everyone can make it. We still have a lot of, of talent in that academy or on loan, uh, especially because Mark Gay was the one that left uh, recently. Still got Colwell. We've got still got Mbuamba. Sorry if I <laughs> mispronounced that. And we still have Ethan Ampadu, you know. So there's a lot, a lot of options still there. And selling some, well, just has to be the case. And we still have, if, if he would turn into this brilliant defender because he will be playing at Palace uh, I mean they have like 13 first squad players and barely any defenders so he will be playing that's sure that I'm sure of that um, and he develops into you know the next best thing at centre-back then great you know we have we have the option of uh, uh, first refuser if I'm not mistaken of that we can that means nothing by the way well <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean anything, but you know, it can't can't hurt, right? Uh, it, it feels very useless to me, to be honest. It just means that Palace, um, it will just pre- it will prevent a situation where Palace don't accept one of our bids um, out of spite or something like that. <laughs> like, um, when if someone makes a bid for Mark Kuhi, for example. Chelsea will know how much the bid has been made for, and they will definitely match it. And maybe, maybe it prevents Palace from getting into too much of a bidding war or something like that. But it just feels essentially useless because um, ultimately, it just comes down to whether the player really wants to come back or not. And if, like, if if Man City is in for him, for example, um, he's got a real decision on his hands. It just, I don't think it really means anything. First refusal. I will say that. Um, the sell-on may mean that if the sell-on is like a decent percentage, then it may mean that um, we could end up getting him for a little less. Because, for example, if um, if someone offered 30 million for him, well, not 30, maybe 50 million in uh, three years, and we offered 50 million and got him for that as well, um, the sell-on percentage would mean that we would get him for 50 million minus whatever percentage of sell-on we would earn. So. Um, well, I guess we'd probably be saving a few bucks there, but yeah, it just, I mean, a sell-on is just basic anyway. I don't think the first refusal means much. I, in, I mean, I do agree. I do agree that um, everyone can't make it, but I also think that that statement is thrown around quite loosely by people who simply want to absolve the club of any responsibility in the situation. Um, when you're talking about people like Miles Port-Harris, Fine, I can accept. Um, I can accept that Chelsea have let him go. Um, I, I can. I can. Ex- I can even accept that uh, Dino Livramento saw 
Well, okay, not Livermore. I can accept the Lewis bait. So <laughs> maybe maybe Billy Gilmore ahead of him in the in the packing order. Maybe he saw mm. Ethan Ampadu ahead of him or something like that. Even though they're different kinds of players, it's just um, you're talking about midfield bodies, um, and who knows how long Jorginho is going to be at the club. So I can I can understand why Chelsea may be forced into letting those two go, but with people like Livermore and Kuhi, and even Tomori for that matter. I just think it was very much in the club's... Um, the ball is very much in the club's court in those situations. I just feel like if a pathway existed like it did for Lampard, and they would have signed deals. And not just the pathway. Like Lampard definitely talked to these players about the plan that he had for them, for their progression. The guys like Reese James, Tammy Abraham, basically every youngster that's played for Chelsea since Lampard took over, um, including uh, Hudson Adoy. Uh, and Tomori as well. Mm. But listen, our, our centre-back situation is very clear. Everyone has a contract that's running out in 2022 and except Zuma, who's out in 2023. And if Zuma needs to be cashed in on, now is the time. Um, so it just feels like we're not, we're not in a situation where we have like a group of four or five settled centre-backs and uh, we're telling Marco, he, there's, there's really no no way that you're going to make it here. The fact of the matter is Mark Gurhi has been among the most exceptional young centre-backs that the Championship has seen in the last few years, uh, with no exaggeration whatsoever, because I watched Tomori play in the Championship, and I don't think Mark Gurhi did any worse than him. I think he, uh, in fact, I think he did um, slightly better for what it's worth. I know I know Tomori won Derby County's Player of the Year, and they reached a Championship playoff final. Mark Gurhi did that for Swansea as well, and I just think that Mark Gurhi was a lot more comfortable defending in that league. Whilst being um, whilst being just as comfortable on the ball, so and this was with any prior senior experience before that, apart from a couple of Chelsea appearances in the cup. Um, so I, I don't I don't think it's I, I don't think it's um, you know that that it's been very widely processed as to how good Marco he has been over the last eighteen months. Um, you talk about guys like Joe Roden going from Swansea to Tottenham, and then Joe Roden playing for Tottenham. And uh, Ben White playing a blinder of a season for Leeds and then going to the Premier League and immediately, um, you know, having bids of 25 million from Leeds and now having a bid of 50 million from a club that finished ninth place in the league. Um, or was it eighth? I forget. But, Doesn't matter. you know, I'm just yeah, I'm just saying that is there really that much of a relative difference in the levels between all of these players? I mean, I would even say Marco, he outperformed Joe Roden in the same team. And Joe Roden got a move to like a, you know, what, what should be a top six club in the Premier League. Um, so is it really that hard in that situation when you have let Fikayo Tomori move to AC Milan? Is it really hard to convince Mark Gurhi of a pathway to the first team or at least try to make an effort to move on at least one of the centre-backs um, or two of them? who will be out of contract in 2022. And I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Antonio Rudiger. I know we've just won a Champions League, but is Thiago Silva actually going to stay with us beyond 2022? I don't I don't know. Nah, um, no. Will Rudiger, is it, could he ostensibly get another payday at PSG or a, a club like that when he leaves as a free agent from Chelsea and hence gets more in wages? Would his agent get more money from that? For sure. Um, is it is it then... Does is it therefore is Rudiger signing a new contract at Chelsea like a dead ringer? I don't think so. Um, 
Kasper how much more longer is he going to start at right centre back for Chelsea? I don't know. Um, wh- wh- so it just it seems a little ridiculous that Chelsea couldn't convince Marco that he definitely has a role to play over here, and I don't think Marco he would have moved if Chelsea had actually convinced him of that. It, um, it, it wouldn't have been that hard to give him a decent amount of minutes this season either. In all honesty, I, I don't think it would have been. So I just think that a situation like Gohis could have been completely av- avoidable. And leave Romento as well. Um, if you've got Reese James um, kind of established in the team for right centre-back and right wing-back, and you're trying Hudson-Odoi there, and you've got Aspilicueta playing there now and then um, to switch things up, is it that much of an ask to to kind of to bleed um, minutes for Livramento into things as you go, especially given we're going to have a lot of mi- a lot of games this season. I don't think that seems very outlandish either, and Livramento is genuinely a top-tier prospect. So again, that situation seemed a bit avoidable, but instead you see stories of Chelsea going for Adama Traore and um, Ashraf Hakimi, and you just... You, I think we really need to ask ourselves whether all of that is actually necessary and whether the club is actually going the extra mile to try and convince these players that they're valued at the club. So in, in these two situations, I just don't think that enough effort was made on on, on that um, on that front. But yeah, I, I just think it's it's more representative of a general problem that the pathway that had briefly opened up under Lampard, and as Joe very rightly said, um, it's kind of closing up again. The guys that got through the door have gotten through the door and they are quite good, so they will stay there. Um, I, I mean, may, maybe not all of them. Tammy Abraham might leave. But, the, you know, um, now that the pathway seems to be closing back up, how many more guys will make it? And I think we're in a period where we have a lot of good players on our books at the moment, including guys like Bate and Livramento, um, who, I mean, I, I could I could see Louis Bate playing some minutes for Leeds in the Premier League this season, at some point, I don't think he would have got that at Chelsea. If other clubs are willing to take a chance um, on our youngsters, that must mean that they're good. Uh, it must mean something. Um, if if Brighton went and got Terry Clante and almost played him off the bat, it must mean something, right? I mean, we, we've watched Livramento for the 23s, we've watched Lante for the 23s. If You've really got to kind of try and gauge the difference in level and whether it really is that big. Uh, I just think, yeah, I just think perception of levels is just a very, it's a warped concept in football because after like five games, five senior games, a player can be seen as a totally different prospect as to bef- as to before playing them. I just think that's something that happens a lot, happened with even someone like Juan Bissaka. And uh, sometimes I see, I'm, I'm sorry to go go off on this uh, monologue or t- tirade. Um, I'm almost By done. All but it's just, By all means, no, take your time, uh, mate. It's just an impassioned... Um, um, string of words, I guess, uh, for a topic that I feel quite strongly about. Anyone who's listened before and knows you, Ram, will know that, it, it first of all, it comes from the heart and yeah. that this topic is slightly important to you. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I was, I saw, I saw some suggestions of people saying that we only want the academy prospects here who really have the confidence to make it at Chelsea and the ones who oh are really God. willing to persevere like Mason Mount. Can't stand that. I really can't stand that, to be honest. Uh, has it? I mean, it worked out pretty well for Jaden Sancho, I think. Um, it worked out pretty well for Jamal Musiala, who left even earlier than Sancho did. Uh, it, it for, for some people, it doesn't work out. Like there, there are there are kids who move abroad and it doesn't really work out for them. Kaelin Hines, Keenan Bennett, Sabir Amaichi, Matthew Bonswell. You've got all of those examples, but then 
you have people like Jaden Sancho, you have your Musialas, you have Tariq Lamde who moved to Brighton early. I think it's it's just, I feel like Jaden Sancho has really brought about a, a cultural shift in the sense that young players are just simply more empowered to have the futures in their own hands now. And they are more likely to take the pragmatic choice while deciding um, or while evaluating the next best step for their careers. I think that um, now that they've really seen someone from their own crop, like uh, as as um, Chelsea youth and um, Joe rightly said, they all talk to each other now. Imagine um, Jaden Sancho was, was like, he was, he was 17 years old, not too long ago. I mean, he won the World Cup not too long ago and then he just moved. And it's it's really, it has an empowering effect. So why wouldn't Tariq Lante move to Brighton if they offered him first team minutes? He would do it, knowing that if he does really well there, he'd probably get a move to a top six side anyway. And that just, that has just, that's really affected the mindset of youngsters in the best way possible. And I don't think it's about this mentality lot at all. In in fact, I just think it shows good decision making and the ability to evaluate situations in um, a very objective way and just do the thing that's best for them. And I think that for, for every young player who has moved early and found success now, I think it's worked pretty well for them. It doesn't work well for some, but it's all about backing yourself and doing the best thing for you. So, yeah, I just think that's a, honestly, it's a pile of nonsense and they're, they're just, they're, they're doing the right thing. So I don't, I, I hopefully won't hear much of that again. But yeah, I, I, do, I do wish um, Louis Pate and Bert Harris and Livramento, if they were to move away, all the very best. And I hope that we start handling our own youngsters a bit better, like Anjurin. I feel like he, he hasn't been handled well at all over the last 18 months. And from what I've watched for the 23s, honestly, I don't think he's been playing at the same level that I've watched him earlier as well. It just, it's like he's kind of caught in this limbo where um, he is too good for the 23s, but it, I don't know. He's just, it, it, he, he seems like he knows he should be playing higher up, you know, if you know what I mean. So I just think that something really needs to be done about that Anjurin situation as well. The club really need to, um, yeah, take a long, hard look at all of this stuff. Mm. And yeah, that's the end. <laughs> well, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, obviously, I'm also very much in favour of academy uh, players coming up, filling initially maybe the gaps or immediately becoming starters, as was the case with Mason Mount. But uh, I, I don't feel as strongly about, for example, if Tino Liveramento does leave Yes, top prospect, undoubtedly. But because of our huge pool, which we have accumulated over the years, we can we can take that. Yeah, we can take it on the chin and just move on. And that is Chelsea philosophy. It always has has been. You know, if someone wants to leave, by all means. You know, we're, we're not going to stand in your way. It doesn't matter if academy or first team uh, squad. It's always been the case at Chelsea, which I actually respect. Um. But the thing is, you know, okay, so the one window has closed with Tino Liveramento, it would most likely appear. Then again, today, with the news from Nazar Kinsella coming out that Dujon Sterling has impressed uh, Thomas Tuchel, who, just because of his injury, has, and I'm, <laughs> has been forgotten. And I'm not going to, you know, stand here and lie and say, well, I, I hadn't forgotten him. I actually had. To be fair, but I also was looking at at, at his his um, profile on on transfer market today. I thought, 
what? I, I thought it was 24, 25 already. He's been so long at this club and been so long in the discussion. He's only 21. It, it feels like it feels like ages. I mean, we know that Antonio Conte actually really did think a lot about him. And that means a lot because Conte isn't necessarily the kind of guy who really looks into youth prospects that much. Um, okay, he didn't play much, Sterling, but still, you know, he had a great loan at Coventry, I'd say. Uh, you'll most certainly know better, or you, you two yeah, will he was know that better good. than me. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so his last loan didn't pan out as we wanted. It happened far too often, unfortunately, um, like with Ampadu uh, or... Um, Josh McEachron, that's a bit a while ago, but you know, so you Gee. get my my point. Um, but yeah, no, we're Chelsea and we can take it. You know, Dujon Sterling, you know, where the one uh, opportunity goes out of the window, a new one arises in form of Dujon Sterling. And, you know, maybe it's a good thing that we haven't actually bought anyone yet. It would appear that Chelsea might have and I'm being very, very careful here and cautiously optimistic. You're being incredibly optimistic. Might have learned from their mistakes and are looking into, okay, we're going to make some sales and then we're going to try and buy this one striker or one top, top world-class player and the rest will be filled up with, with uh, people from the loan army, like, uh, for example... Uh, Armando Broja or um, uh, Dujon Sterling. Sorry? Danny Drinkwater. Good old drinky. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. It is baffling to see them all turn up (laughs) for pre-season every year. It's like a different team. Uh, I think our pivot uh, against Peterborough was like Drinkwater and Barkley, where that makes your eyes pop out a bit. <laughs> it, I mean, it so does it's show. An interesting point, Jimmy. Just, just to yeah. sort of jump in slightly here. Yes, please, please do. While you've been, been talking about that, the, you know, Ram and I have been been talking about pathways, and actually, when you look at the the composition of this sort of pre-season group of players that Chelsea mm. have, can you imagine being even someone like Livermento? You know, you that you have, you know, you've got Reese James ahead of you. You've possibly got Aspilicueta. The club are looking at two possible players, but then you come back and you've still got David Zappacosta getting minutes ahead of you or getting time ahead of you in training. And, you know, guys who play in central midfield, as you say, having Danny Drinkwater there, having Bakayoko, having, you know, Ross Barkley sort of playing ahead of you, centre-backs or whoever it might be. It's, you know, the, the, the transfer mistakes of the past that we've made, they're still impacting the, I would say, the decision-making of young players and their ability to mm. come on and, and impress, um, you know, Thomas Tuchel. He has to obviously include the, the full squad of guys who've come back in, you know, from loan, uh, destinations, guys who maybe never have a future at the club. But I think I saw that we, we had the ability to play two full 11v11s in training, which to me, considering we had so many players at the Euros, is just it's just mind-boggling in terms of the, yeah. the players that we have. So <laughs> it is, yeah, it is saying about that, you know, the pathway isn't just about not, you know, not maybe sort of blocking it in terms of transfers, but, you know, the, the pathway does include existing people that are competing for attention, competing for minutes and fitness and, and putting themselves in front of the, the the manager's eye. 
I'm happy for, for certainly for Dujon. I know we could possibly be talking about it a bit later from because just because he's had so many injuries and he was really a, a really sort of promising talent coming through and maybe it's about sort of right time, right place for him in, in at the moment and obviously right system in that, that we're playing with wing backs and all that sort of stuff. But you know, if, if I'm if I'm Lewis Bate and I'm coming into training and I've got, you know, international players or guys who are from Premier Leagues or guys who are, you know, been out on loan playing in uh, Napoli or wherever it might be in, in in those areas ahead of me. It's not just Billy Gilmore that I'm keeping my eye on. It has to be all of this sort of, you know, accumulated um, sort of transfer, um, sort of, I don't know really what to call them, mass, like this sort of massive signings that we've, we've, we've sort of accumulated over the past. And it, it that also has to come into, into play here. So in terms of your, what you're saying in, in that Chelsea are possibly waiting for that one particular player or trying to be a little bit more uh, particular with who they're trying to sign. It still feels to me that we have almost 15 to 20 players on the books that have no real kind of, you know, there's no real sort of desire for them to be here next season, but they are still proving to be uh, obstacles for for the younger players as well, which it's a sort of catch 22. Yes, we want to sell them to, to raise funds to buy players, but equally it makes the, the likelihood that a young player is spotted or given more minutes in in certain areas of the pitch, more game time in front of the coach, even less likely. So it's it's a real fine balance. And I think to to Ram's point earlier about you know sort of Andrew and maybe how we're we're not necessarily doing the best by our um, youngsters that 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 sort of yeah. transfer sort of mass sort of comes into the equation as well. Okay, yeah, no, fair point, fair point. Um, then again, I mean. If if you are a Lewis Bate, for example, I mean, even even Danny Drinkwater, for example, David Zappacosta will know they have no future at this club. Even if Thomas Tuchel is giving everyone a chance, because that's just what he does. He always has done that, even already at Mainz. He just always wants to see the full squad, you know. Maybe someone's developed, blah, blah, blah. So fair play to him in that regard. But, I mean, they're not going to be playing here next season. Even our academy products, you'd think, would know that. And maybe I'm being a bit too presumptive here, but I, I think if, and I don't want to echo that sentiment, yeah, mentality, weak mentality, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, even if they are in contention in preseason, you should be as a youngster, as a highly regarded youngster, have the confidence to say, yeah, I, I have no problem with them because I'm going to just sweep them away. Obviously, the more settled options that are coming back like ross barkley um who i also think we are definitely going to sell this this summer um who had a pretty good loan at aston villa at least uh time what you know at times um still you know i i think that well they shouldn't be afraid to you know try and make the boss uh Give him, uh, give them the his attention. But yeah, I, I I fully understand that, and I just, I just think we we have this talent pool. It's gonna be okay. I know I'm a hopeless optimist in that regard. Even though my predictions are always very always very pessimistic uh, when it comes to games itself, it's you know, we we'll, we we'll, we'll just have to survive. Not everyone can make it. It's, it's yeah, uh, it's simplified. I know. Uh, compared to the in-depth analysis you two have brought to the table. But, I mean, it's... it's At the moment, and maybe it's because I'm actually that anxious for the next season in that position, 
everything is okay as long as we get an elite striker because for so long we've been missing that and if we're raising the funds to do that then I'm down if we do end up not buying a striker of the caliber of uh, uh, Haaland or Lukaku then I will reevaluate my my stance and say well why the hell did we not give them then the chance for example brochure whatsoever uh, who, or whoever but for now I'm just going to try and trust the club trust Chelsea we do have and this is also a big difference to a few years ago we do have Peter Cech at the club here now and I'm going to try and trust Peter here uh, Peter here uh, that he will do what's best also in the interest of our youngsters but yeah um, I think it's a pretty good link to the next topic or the last topic of this podcast and that is obviously transfers we've already touched upon it a bit today uh yes which positions should we prioritize what are the expectations here or which ones are realistic joe i mean i i i, I think it's not up for debate that we need a striker right it, <laughs> I think that, that's the one that everybody in the fan base can absolutely agree on absolutely i mean the, the question is here and this is a very very important one because you mentioned that that terrible summer of 2017. What should we do if we don't get a Haaland or a Lukaku? Because I don't think that not buying anyone is an option because Tammy Abraham's leaving. I, I just can't imagine he'll he'll stay after what happened at the tail end of the last season. Um, what do we do? Yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting one. And if we're just sort of making the assumption that Tammy's going here. Um, I would point out that certainly from a, an analytics perspective that a lot of the strikers in that sort of bracket that we're being mm. linked with outside of the, the top two, um, they don't necessarily compare favourably to, to Tammy. Um, so it, it feels a little bit redundant in many respects. However, in the, in the you know, the I suppose the, the, the vein of answering the question, I'm curious, and again, I've, I've not looked too much into to the numbers here, but I'm trying to draw some parallels to sort of that Nicholas, uh, Nicola Anelka signing that Chelsea made um, probably 10, 11 years ago at this point, where he he came from Bolton for £15 million. It wasn't, you know, uh, I think I remember at the time, a lot of people were, were questioning why, you know, why we weren't going out and spending mega money on a, on a centre-forward. Um, and maybe somebody like a Danny Ings, who has the Premier League experience, maybe is looking for that one last move to a big club, has the you know a decent sort of finishing rate when it comes to chance conversion and things of that nature. Maybe somebody like that for for a, a sort of reduced fee um, to to, re- to replace Tammy would be of interest. Um, I would at this point note that Chelsea Youth has already produced the uh, the standard uh, diagrams to show maybe that mm. Tammy is still probably better than him. But, you know, if, if Tammy's going, then you're going to have to live without him. Um, but somebody like that, I think it's, you know, looking realistically, somebody that can hit the ground running, that knows the Premier League, that knows the the tempo, the style of football, that can execute the instructions of, of Tuchel in that sort of lone uh, centre-forward role. Ings probably is a, you know, low-risk, low-cost option, in, in that respect, I don't necessarily then feel that that is the the firepower that that sort of um, pushes Chelsea towards you know that that points gap that we've had with City and Liverpool for the past couple of seasons. Um, but he's he's at least a, an interesting prospect. And then um, you know Patson Dacker, the guy who's gone to Leicester City, was was somebody that I was I was sort mm-hmm. of interested in again. But 
you know, Leicester being Leicester, they're always sort of the, they're kind of like the first mover in like a, you know, a tech war. They always seem to make the the first move on players that some of the the more established sort of top four, top six sides are a little bit less um, reluctant to commit to straight away. So he was probably the only one of interest really to me because there are some very interesting qualities that he has, particularly he's, he's a very, very good finisher um, and, and certainly has the, the athleticism and the intelligence to play in the Premier League. But beyond him, then you're, you're really just looking at sort of a various... Um, I, I'd say fairly indistinguishable pile of, of players who have similar qualities with similar risks, maybe some some decent upside, but you're probably not in a necessarily in a better position than, than if you would have committed to to Tammy as your number nine for the season. Again, um, I, I think Tammy is good for 15, 20 goals a season. Um, certainly when it comes to to the Premier League, you know he's not a penalty taker, so his output I think is pretty decent, but. Obviously, that that bridge seems to have been well and truly burned now. So I, I probably would go with Ings, and that's more from a familiarity standpoint than trying to find some um, sort of sexy, sort of undervalued player in, in European football. Um, the guy who we've been linked to recently in Germany, I, I cannot pronounce the guy's surname. Um, you know, I think he got 16 or 17 goals this season. He's got a pretty decent output, but then you look at his historical <laughs> returns, <laughs> and it's sounds, just like... <laughs> sounds yeah, like go. a There you go. Um, you know, historically, this is a guy who's a sort of single digit, you know, kind of producer. I'm always a little bit reluctant to buy someone after they've had their their kind of like breakout season, um, you know, regression to, to to the mean and 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 the adaptation or the quote unquote Bundesliga tax that necessarily would apply to somebody like that coming to Chelsea. Um, so yeah, it's it's probably Ings at this point is 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 the one that I would go with. Um, again, I wouldn't necessarily expect fireworks, but somebody at least reliable and 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 somebody who wouldn't need a a period of integration into into the league probably is is the route that I would go. Mm. Yeah, that that is probably the safest bet we could take uh for the next season and then try and maybe get into the mix with Haaland next season which seems pretty impossible when then the big guns maybe have recovered a bit financially and then Real Madrid I think that does seem like the first option for Haaland uh, yeah. Lukaku will be a year older uh, well I don't think there's any point in talking about Harry Kane anyway because he'll never join us uh, thanks Levy um, but Ram uh, what, what what do you say I mean striker is the one position or would you have any other one we'd need to maybe have some investment yeah um i'd say take a cheeky punt on kiefer more uh no i'm kidding i i agree with <laughs> wait uh, what <laughs> um i I'm, i agree with joe for most part well for pretty much all of it to be honest i, I just don't think that any of the names that have been bandied about are actually uh, better than Tammy Abraham. I just think that's the fact of the matter. And that Tuchel should really commit to playing him more than he does because what he did to him for, at the back end of last season was just kind of disrespectful. Um, but I do think that if he did have to go and get someone, I would probably, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hate the prospect of Ings either just because uh, he's probably... He's probably okay to give you the bandwidth uh, to give him like maybe 1,500 to 2,000 minutes to come in and play reliably, probably score a few create chances, which he will. Um, and I kind of think that 
it would also serve us from a more long-term squad building point of view. Mm. Because I think we really need to sort out our situation with respect to who we really want to play as a striker. Like, what are we doing with Werner and what are we doing with Havertz? Are they strikers? Are they attackers? If they are attackers, what are we doing with Hakim Ziyech and Pulisic and Callum Hudson-Odoi and Mason Mount? Because they're all attackers as well. So I, I just think that uh, bringing in... Um, if you're really going to bring in like a you know proper long-term young striker uh, who's really good, if such a striker should exist, then you really need to sort out the squad situation because it, otherwise it'll just end up becoming like a logjam of attackers the way that we had uh, in around 2012 to 13. You know, just six six attackers for three positions where all of them are pretty good, and you know, two of them end up leaving. So. Yeah. I just think that we're a bit log jammed in that position and we could use um, probably someone like Ings to come in and probably do, he, he would probably do a good job in the short term. And then uh, we can hopefully sort our squad situation out. I mean, one of them will have to move. Um, maybe, maybe it'll be Ziyech or uh, someone else. But uh, that that just kind of needs to resolve itself before we really commit big bucks to a striker is what I think anyway. Especially, especially seeing as we, we haven't even gotten the best out of Harvards and Werner yet because we don't know what their best roles are. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's as simple as just plodging on a striker. So I do agree with, I do agree with Joe. Um, the other position I'd say that would probably need some investment was, uh, I guess it's probably midfield. To be honest, um, yeah. I, I would like, I would like someone to come in and play next to next to N'Golo Kante. Uh, who is not named Jorginho, although Jorginho <laughs> is uh, he is a uh, Ram, Ram said that, not me. Just for <laughs> <laughs> he is an impressive player by all accounts. Um, oh yeah, but... <laughs> now you, yeah, you got away with that. Yeah, sure, <laughs> just got the curve. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, I think I think now's probably the time to go and get someone in midfield because I just think we're we're in a we're in a place where. We have Conte. I, I hope he has many years left, but I don't know how many years he actually has left. It, it just I, I just think the Tuchel managed him quite well um, when he came in in terms of minutes, and that really benefited Conte. And Conte is obviously uh, a world class player. Um, I just wonder how many how many more years of uh, performance at this level he has to offer us. And for that reason, and also because our other options include Jorginho and Kovacic, who um, have certain strengths but never seem to consistently come good for a season at a time um i i I, for that reason we should probably invest in a in a good midfielder um and actually as far as um as far as you know tangible alternatives go i I know that i know that the names of uh declan rice and um sure many have been probably the ones at the forefront of transfer rumors I, I don't think i don't know i don't know if sure many is actually a transfer rumor at this moment but i do i do see him being discussed a lot and i i think i think he is a player with a high enough ceiling for us to consider um although he may be a slightly more developmental option in the very short term point of view um so i mean you and i discussed this every other episode jimmy which is why I really want to ask Joe where he sees 
um, the priority lying in terms of what kind of midfielder we bring in. Like, for example, um, Declan Rice obviously has the capacity to fill all the defensive shortcomings that Jorginho had. Um, and I think the Declan Rice that we saw for, um, that we see for West Ham and England are a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, <laughs> um, and I think that, I think that just on the whole, um, there is some underrating of Declan Rice that goes on, um, on social media for reasons that I'm not sure of, but yeah, I, I just, I mean, Joe, do you see it as Declan Rice being someone that we should absolutely get in just from a from the point of view of uh, he's probably also going to be like a huge member of the squad core if he does come in, um, given the, given the personality and the attachment to the club. And obviously those are intangibles. But then when, when you're talking about building a squad from a long term perspective, you're probably going to need like a core of players as well. So um, does that. Does does Declan Rice's um just does his overall situation make him a more attractive target to you, or do you think that we can do better for maybe you know like a thirty-five to forty million and go to go try and get Shuamani or try and aim a little higher and get Benasa or something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's it's difficult to ignore the the leadership qualities and I think the intangibles as you say that that Rice has. Um, I think he, he's very reminiscent of John Terry for West Ham in many respects in how he plays. And I think the the point certainly that Ram made about him um, playing quite differently for England than West Ham, I think that probably equally applies to quite a few players as well. And it's, it's a good distinction to make. The benefit, I think, of bringing Declan in is that I think he gives you that immediate flexibility to play with a single number six. Appreciate that he plays uh, in a double pivot for West Ham for the majority of his time there. But sort of knowing his sort of qualities and how he plays. And I think he's actually a lot quicker and more agile than people give him credit for. Um, he would probably give you that that proper sort of reference anchor point to, to maybe play two number eights alongside him um, and change the the shape. We know Tuchel has played a lot of 4-3-3 throughout his career. And I think certainly there are games that we've played, thinking back to some of the draws that we've had and some of maybe the games where we've looked a little bit stagnant in possession, where not necessarily having that sort of back seven, that sort of solid uh, three and it was mostly a five at times and the, the two pivot players um, sort of giving you a little bit more of a natural advantage when you you add a, an additional attacker further up the pitch so I think from a from at least from a tactical standpoint he gives you the ability to to play still with the double six that Tuchel likes um, probably in many respects is the sort of heir apparent to N'Golo Kante in that sort of kind of uh, position within the sort of the double six that he plays at West Ham at the moment um, but would give, I think, immediate flexibility to to play as a as a lone holding player with support from from two maybe more attack minded um, central midfield players. But also say that I think he would complement uh, Jorginho. He would complement complement Kovacic as well. Um, just think he's got a very very high um, sort of high IQ when it comes to defensive actions and positioning. And the one thing that I probably would would note with Declan is that the similarity that he has to Johnny B. McHale and being able to to delay counterattacks to me is pretty significant. Yeah, I know, I know it's a it's a funny one to, to bring up, um, but his ability to delay counterattacks by making sure that he's correctly closed off passing lanes, that he is sort of harassing people to, to the extent that they have to delay that, that pass forward that they want to make for two, three, four seconds, allowing players to filter back in. That ability to defend in space is is crucial. Um, Ram may know if there's a statistic or there's an analytic uh, you know, attribute now that, that sort of shows that. 
Um, but his ability to, to stop counters for me certainly is very noticeable when I watch him, at least from a scouting perspective. Um, so I think, yeah, that that for me is, is certainly should be a, a player that we're definitely looking to to sign. I think the, the character that he has and just the physical traits that he brings as well, as well as the fact I think that him playing in a Chelsea shirt maybe would would increase his level by by another 10, 15 percent. Um, just because of the virtue that he is obviously a Chelsea fan, his family are Chelsea fans, it's sort of his dream club. Um, I mean, in terms of Schirmelli, I mean, th this is a guy that I am very, very high on in terms of his ability. You know, this is a guy who was originally more of a, a deep-lying playmaker when he was at sort of um, Bordeaux um, before moving to, to Monaco. I think he's sort of really rounded out his game and he is probably more of the obvious player that you would maybe say that that has the, a different profile to what Chelsea currently have. And by that, I mean, he has some very, very good qualities in terms of finding um, quite, quite hurtful passes in the final third. He can make some very, very decent passes from, from depth and from around the penalty area. And I think he gives you a bit more um, sort of, uh, let's say, creativity or a bit more sort of um, ingenuity when it comes to his, his vision and his ability to pick those passes um, while still having kind of those... Uh, defensive traits and strength and, and physicality and timing of, of the challenge, etc. Do you think possibly again, you know, it's a guy that, that's just won the League One Young Player of the Year. He was in the League One team in the season. Um, maybe he is certainly probably. Uh, yeah, I think as, as Ram was mentioning, has some 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 sort of developmental traits that you would look to to improve upon. I think certainly when it comes to coaching, having Tuchel have somebody with that sort of raw talent, though, that's probably where the the upside comes from uh, comes to me, and yeah, if we're looking at sort of resource allocation, if you were, again, I'm just sort of putting names out there, but Lukaku and Holland, 100 million, 150 million pound players, whatever they're going to be, maybe you can actually bring in a, a Shuamani and have a, a very impactful player, sort of a, this kind of modern box to box, where they're you know he can defend well, he's he's good at receiving and playing in sort of middle areas, got a very good first touch, ability to get out of uh, trouble. Um, aggressive sort of when it comes to ball distribution and passing, maybe it's uh, turning down the Hollywood setting, maybe two notches was, is something that he would probably need to work on a tiny bit. But, you know, the fact that he has the vision and ability to play some of those passes into uh, forwards quick and early and with the right kind of weight and all that sort of stuff is great. And then in the final third, I'd like to see him get forward a bit more because he's got a great capacity to shoot. Um, anyone can Google or YouTube the Santatian game where he has scored an absolute screamer. Um, but he has some nice vision and ability to create as well. So um, against PSG, set up Fabregas for an absolutely ridiculous pass and, and goal. So I like him a lot. I think he's a different profile to, to Rice. I mean, he's probably a bit more, of, let's say, obviously creative. He's got more of a sort of a natural attacking um, sort of uh, instincts in game. Um, I'm greedy. I would love the pair of them to sign for Chelsea because I think that's mm. really your sort of foundation for the future. But if you're looking for, for somebody different, so I think Rice would kind of sort of sit in that Kante kind of area where he'd be sort of destructive and a ball winner and and then somebody who is sort of hunting and retain sort of looking to retain possession. I think Shuameni has the slightly different qualities and out of all the three midfielders that we have, he's got more sort of technical quality when it comes to passing and vision and probably would add more to the team going forward. So you're not necessarily having a double pivot that's super, super defensive. You've got a guy in there that can play that sort of almost box to box from the pivot and actually impact the game in the final third, which is why I think the other three kind of fall down a little bit from at least from from when I, I watched them. Um, so, yeah, th those are kind of the, the two differences for me. You've got a, a reference point six, somebody who could shape, uh, ch help change the shape of the team if needed to a 4-3-3 or will be a lot more attack minded because Weiss's defensive capabilities, his agility, his, his athleticism would enable you to change systems. Um, I think Schumann would more be a player that comes in to play in the double pivot that he's played in for Monaco. 
Um, but then you have a slightly more of an attack-minded upside from him. So you've kind of got your sort of two different flavours there. But as I said, me being greedy and wanting uh, wanting to improve the midfield, I would 100% try to buy both. If you can get Stuart Many this summer and Rice for a reduced price next summer, I'd take that. Um, but but I think from a, a standpoint in terms of building the squad, you would have to probably give the nod to Rice at this point in time because he bring, he brings so much um, sort of intangible quality to the side as well. So it's difficult to overlook that. And he's Premier League proven. Another, yeah. another vital point. I mean, with all due respect to Tukmeni, and I, I, I absolutely believe Sesk, and I, um, I really do think that if Sesk gives him his blessing, saying that this kid's really the real deal, then I believe him. The thing is, um, because you described Tukmeni, uh, I'll be completely honest, I've barely seen anything of him apart from the odd highlights, so I'm, I, I wouldn't dare to uh, pass judgment on him regarding regard to his ceiling, uh, how he might perform for Chelsea. The thing is, many of the traits that you described here also are applicable to Billy Gilmore. And we do know that Billy Gilmore will be returning next season. And I do really think that he has a future at Chelsea. So once he has that hopefully good loan at Norwich, he'll be able to come back and presumably take up uh, Jorginho's space because I don't think he'll be staying... Uh, after this season. He's definitely staying this one. I think next time he'll be off going back to Italy. It just seems very likely in my opinion, um, which would leave us with, well, uh, a bit too many options in midfield if you also take into con- uh, in contention that uh, there's also Conor Gallagher in the mix. If we were to get Rice and Tuchmeni, uh I think as a result, Rice, for so many reasons, uh, apart from a hundred million price tag, makes the most sense because I agree with you, Ram. I, I really want him to play forever here because he's probably the the player that I like the most, just from his personality and because he's so humble, etc. Is Nengolo Kante. So we need someone who's defensive minded, who can sit in that midfield, as you said, Joe, as the only player there he he could take over that role. Uh, like, for example, Fernandinho did for Manchester City for such a long time, and he could sit there. But, you know, I don't know. It took many... I, I'm I'm worried that he might block things up for Billy Gilmer. And so, for me, it'd be more uh, rice or bust, really, and just put everything else into Haaland. Otherwise, I really want... Declan to uh, to come home, so to speak. Not only because of the bromance between him and Mason Matt will be terrific, but also because of the versatility. As as you you guys already said, I can only echo it. The games that he played for West Ham were much more. He played much more expansively. I think David Moyes gives him that freedom, while Gareth Southgate most certainly did not. Um, there's much more to his game than we saw at the Euros and. Technically, technically, he also has a lot to offer. So I really want us to have Declan Rice. I, it, it seems a bit sad that we already, without having actually even signed him yet, will probably have the candidate to, or the heir, the heir to, uh, the heir, sorry, the heir to Jorginho in respect to being so divisive among the fan base. I hope he would be able to uh, make the 
ones who are opposed to such a transfer come around uh, sooner rather than later. But you never know. We 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 have a very weird fan base, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, at least at times. Um, so yeah, no, I I totally agree. Declan Rice, not so sure about took many, but then again, I haven't watched him, so I'm just more worried about Billy Gilmer maybe uh, having someone in front of him which might, you know, leave him in the cold. Or wouldn't wouldn't you agree? I've I've had someone ask you this previously, and again, maybe this is just I I, I watch an awful lot of league and football. It's probably mm. the league I watch most. Um, it's it's almost like comparing like Johnny B. McHale to Michael Essien. Like okay. Joe Many is, is like a very aggressive box to box player. Um not necessarily mm-hmm. more of like a we'll say like a bit Gilmore is sort of more of a, a dictator, a controller, a passer from deep. Um I think obviously he he can he can carry the ball through midfield, but it, it's the level I think of dynamism and, and I think you'd you'd more likely see them playing as a pair than sort of in competition with one another. I actually think they would, now that I'm thinking about it, probably complement each other pretty well. Okay. But it, it's, it's almost sort of uh, not chalk and cheese in, in the sense that they're completely, completely different. But I think Schumann's strengths in terms of that box-to-box capacity versus Gilmore, who I think certainly his best performances for Chelsea and even the the sort of the, the cameo against England that he played was sort of that um, deep-lying playmaker, that sort of controlling role that he's able to to sort of um, be the, the the catalyst, being the, the the sort of reference point in terms of uh, recycling possession, but also trying to kickstart the the attack. So, I think that they would probably suit and probably complement each other particularly well. Um, but you you would essentially have two very technically gifted, in my opinion, players who can actually build up play through midfield, but using slightly different um, you know different sides of, of maybe the same coin here. So, I think Shumeni is is your more of your um, box to box kind of dynamic sort of uh, maybe Essien is it's it just trying to maybe grab a, a Chelsea comparison. Um, he's he's certainly more dynamic than than Billy, um, whereas I think Billy is is more of sort of the the controller the, the sort of controller type the guy who will dictate um, a game through his ability to to pass and to move and to receive and to to take uh, risks that I think other DMs certainly don't take with their passing. So I'm hoping certainly if if the club are interested in in Schumann and he does come here. That it won't be in lieu of, of of Gilmore's career. I think actually it's probably, you know, if you're sort of splitting Chelsea's kind of midfield up, it's probably going to be the the Kovacic side of the pivot that Schumeni impacts on in terms of game time, rather than maybe the sort of Jorginho or Kante, sort of the more defensive specialists um, in in many respects there. So I kind of see him being mm. the the, the complementary player rather than the one that will will take over. Probably very similar in terms of what they can do on the ball. Um, just think that Schumann, he has a little, maybe a little bit more dynamism and range to his game at the moment. And again, you know, just sort of, again, sort of reiterating, this, this guy did just win the Young Player of the Year award in a, in a French league at the moment that has so much talent in there. So it, it would be difficult, I think, to, um, to to make the case that maybe he's not quite, you know, of, of the of the standard required in that respect. But I do think he is he is uh, materially different enough from Gilmore that I wouldn't be too concerned in, in terms of signing him. I would see Gilmore, as you say, coming in on the sort of the Jorginho side of things, um, with with uh, Shuamani being sort of the more of the uh, sort of offensively minded guy, more likely to to play box to box, the guy who's more likely to be in the final third to to impact play. Okay, okay, yeah, I, I, I can I can see that. Yeah, it's, hmm. I mean, 
then again, would would it make sense to have then that double double pivot in midfield between Billy Gilmer and Tukmeni? Wouldn't we be too open, too prone because we wouldn't have that defensive player in there, a la Kante or or Rice? I think that you'd possibly see a move to a four-three-three there. I think right. um, yeah. many makes sense certainly as there's kind of the the right-sided player in a in a three. Um, but also the, the thing is as well, and again, I don't want to sound like I have specialised knowledge of the player here, but I, I think I've probably watched him a lot more than most. If you watch many play against uh, PSG, so both games defensively, he was absolutely immaculate. Um, you know, the sense, the, the the timing of the tackle, the ability to to make recovery runs, the ability to win challenges with with force and to take the ball cleanly. He is a very very good defensive player. But I think more more what I'm thinking of is in terms of the the way that he's been utilised in the, those sort of PSG games would probably be how he would be deployed at Chelsea. But what the the flip side being is that he can give you go forward when we need a bit more dynamism and a little, little bit more quality on the ball, maybe a little bit more. Uh, creativity in those central areas when we're playing the West Broms and the Newcastles and the majority of teams who play that want to play low block and want to play defensive. I think that's where you you have the ability to sort of unleash him and let him be more of a forward thinking player. But he certainly has shown, at least you know for for Monaco, the cap the capacity and the ability to to be more of a disciplined and defensive sitter against somebody like PSG. And if, if somebody has a let's say somebody really has a genuine interest in watching him and seeing what he's about. If you watch both the the, the domestic uh, games against PSG and then watch the Saint-Étienne game that he played recently, I say recently, a couple of months ago, so this side of uh, of the season, um, you'll get the probably get a full picture of the player, somebody who can defend, can be that, that guy who is disciplined. Again, it's somebody that he would need to work on, not sort of painting as the perfect defensive player, but from a uh, an athletic standpoint, from a technical standpoint, when it comes to challenging and winning the ball back, you know the PSG game was, I think, very, very high, high uh, quality and high caliber when I was watching him. And then the switch in play when he's playing a uh, Santatia, when Monaco were ball dominant, and he could get on the ball more and dictate more for uh, more of the play in the final third. So I think he's very well rounded. Um, I think that's also one of the things that Fabregas has said about him that he's a very well rounded player. Um, but it gives you that that I think ability to to switch between having a, a almost a you know a, a back five and then the the two sort of sitting and, and being reactionary in front of them. Versus also being able to to unleash him and playing a little bit more of a, a forward thinking role as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it will also be the cheaper. cheaper he's also route. yeah, he's also like forty million cheaper, whatever it's going to be. So that that does factor in. But then that that is probably as you say that is the Premier League proven kind of tax on top of Rice. You're not you're not sort of uh, you know paying sixty million plus for a player that's. Uh, you know, you don't know necessarily completely fits into the league and the dynamic. And Rice does have that uh, proven, very much proven, I would say, Premier League capacity as well. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and just on that note, oh, sorry, go on, Jim. No, 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 I didn't want to say anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's great to be talking about transfers again. And I'm sure I'll be sick about it in about a week anyway, but it's just... Good to talk about it on the pod again. It's it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, just probably the last position that we might just touch on very, very quickly is um, right wing back. Do we actually need to do anything about that? Um, Given we have Reese James, I mean, we obviously discussed before we have Reese James, Hudson Odoi has been used there. Um, Me personally, I feel like Hudson Odoi's route into the team is getting right wing back minutes, uh, if not immediately, 
as a as one of the two tens behind the attacker behind the striker. I mean, uh, given Mason Mount and maybe Havertz are going to monopolize those two positions. Um, I I feel like for that reason, right wing back is quite important for us to uh, get Atsunadoy into the team and probably transition from that role to the the role behind the striker. Uh, and for that reason, I don't I don't really advocate the signing of Adama Traore or anyone else. Um, I just joke just quickly uh, conscious of uh, not taking up too much of your time. Is that the way you see it as well? Or do you think um, it's just safer to maybe take a or flip the coin on Dijon Sterling or something like that? I know that he's been out for a long time, yeah. but do you think so? Far, far less opinionated on this than in midfield, you'll be glad to know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm exactly the same opinion with, with Ram. I think the, the Hakimi move... You know, again, you could rationalise it by saying that Chelsea were trying to get probably the best player in that position in world football. Um, did have some reservations that, that Inter do use their wing backs a lot different to Chelsea and the midfield structure is different and without going into the massive technical details of what's going on. But still, you could see the ambition there to try and sign somebody who was at least perceptibly one of, if not the best wing backs in world football, to then sort of downgrade that to Adama Traore, who, again, as a fine player, has his, has his skills and has his uses. But then you're sort of into that sort of middle tier of player again of whether this is a real, real sort of uh, improvement on what Chelsea can can offer sort of in-house or, or whether it's it's really a necessary player to to again sort of, you know, close the gap domestically and to continue to push ahead and, and, and re-establish ourselves as a, a European force. I would be uh, interested in, in looking again at sort of Rhys James. Um, I feel certainly when it comes to um, the, the way that he's been utilised. I think I'd like to see a little bit of the handbrake released. I know you can remember sort of seeing at times, you know, Tuchel being very sort of proactive in terms of dragging him back and making sure that he was set in position and supporting the midfielders in terms of the the, the potential for turnovers. But then we saw games like against Manchester City where he completely and utterly destroyed, you know, their their left-hand side and, you know, that image of of him skinning, uh, <laughs> it was, was it Mendy? I can't remember who it was at the time. Yeah, and then, it was Mendy. Yeah. Guardiola sort of head in hands, you know, like, like he, you know, something really awful would happen. So he's got the capability. Um, but I think the, the one that Ram mentioned that I'm, I'm interested to see is to, just to see how Dijon Sterling does. Um, you know, he's had a really awful time away from Chelsea, not, not in terms of, of performances, but in terms of injuries and, and inability to generate momentum in his own career. You know, he's had some up and down loans. He's had some, some, some very uh, decent matches. You know, he's had some poor matches. He's had injuries. He's trying to get sort of himself together. But if he has this sort of uh, right place, right time moment that he appears to be having at the moment and can rediscover some of the confidence and maybe some of the way that he played the position for Chelsea's academy, you know, this is a guy that I think still, I mean, I'd, I would love to see him sort of actually come in and make an impact and, and be maybe more of that aggressive wingback type because he still has the the, the defensive uh, capability. He has the, the body type to play the position. Just a question of trying to keep him fit and agree again in terms of actually getting Hudson Adoy into the team. Um, you know, when we're playing teams that want to play with 10 defenders or 11 men behind the ball, having an actual winger playing in the wing-back position, almost just as an auxiliary player to, to keep the width of the pitch and just to stay wide, um, that's, again, something that I'd like to see. Um, you know, unless you, I said, unless you could have bought Hakimi and then you could have made all the arguments for and against with Livermento here and all the stuff that we saw of months and months and months ago, it feels like. Um, but as things stand, I don't think we necessarily need to invest um, in that position because I just I think what we have the combination of Reese of Dujon of, of Callum for example um, even maybe Aspilicueta deputising there the mixture of, of different abilities and skill sets that we have should realistically see us through and 
again, I think, you know, looking at the team, we're not going to live and die by by the, the the wing back that we select. We need them to play well. They need to be a good player, but they're they're not for me. It's not a, a fundamental position. It's not central midfield. It's not a striker. Um, it's not a, a, an area that is going to massively impact the the trajectory of this Chelsea team. So I think we've got good enough play from there. Um, and again, the only, the only real difference there would would have, would have been if you could have gone and got uh, Hakimi, the the you know the, the quote unquote world class option. But yeah, I'm I'm quite happy with what we have and and, and willing to see how we can. Uh, mix and match and, and make sure that we've got the right um, quality from that position going forward. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think I think you've summed that up really well, to be fair. Um, I just hope the I hope the club don't see the need to really splurge on that position is all I can say, because uh, they just feel like more pros to it than I mean, they feel more they feel like more pros to the existing group than um, that of bringing in someone else. Um, I, I, yeah, I just think that someone something that gets um, very lost in the in the static while uh, talking about transfers is just where the squad is going from a build, squad building point of view. So I'm just always conscious of all of that. But anyway, um, I think that is a decent note for us to call time on this well bumper episode of We and Got No Podcast. Mm. Um, I feel like we've been going on forever now. So um, up in, in the same breath. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being here and apologies for keeping you on so long. But it's been amazing. It's been really fun. No, no, no need to apologise at all. I think certainly the uh, you know the, the youth discussion was always going to take two hours with, with you and I on the podcast. So um, <laughs> I'm glad that, that people at least see, you know, they see perspectives from people that are really impassioned about youth development and certainly Chelsea's academy. Um, I think, again, it's, you know, that, that sort of level of analysis and maybe the depth of what we've spoken to gets lost on social media. So it's nice to actually have a, a discussion and, and certainly hearing you speak about it as well was, was fascinating. Um, and again, when it comes to transfers, you know, I, I can talk about scouting and, and players and midfielders and all that for, for a day. So again, it was uh, yeah really, really fun and then look forward to, to coming back on uh, anytime you guys obviously need me to, to drop in. So yeah, it was, uh, it was good fun today. Awesome. Um, do remember to follow Joe on social media if you're not already, which I highly suspect um, might not be the case. Um, you're probably following him and uh, up to date with his work, but if you're not, you definitely must. Um, you can you can find him on Twitter at Joe Tweedy. We will put we will put his social media handle in the article and the tweet as well. So just um, by the small chance that you haven't, please do and uh, do listen to his latest work as the self-proclaimed a fifth Beatle for London's Blue <laughs> Podcast. It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely title. I really like it. Um, but yeah, um, Jimmy, really good fun again. Um, hopefully we will do this again soon. Um, probably football will probably creep up on us anyway, like the first friendly and uh, yeah, all that will come pretty soon. So I guess we'll probably have stuff to discuss sooner rather than later. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just lots and lots of fun yet again. And um Hopefully, listener, you've enjoyed it as much as we have. So until the next time, um, this is We and Got No Podcast signing off.